0: Friends, most of us can remember significant moments in our lives which kind of influence and reshape what follows. I shall never forget the moment when I realized that I was a father for the first time. I had been banished to a waiting room at the end of a long corridor because my wife was undergoing an an emergency caesarean section. But I crept back up the corridor, stealthily. And suddenly the doors of the operating theatre opened. Two nurses emerged. Between them was a hospital trolley containing our baby. One of them saw me and shouted, It's a boy! (laughs) Off they went to the special care baby unit. And I was left to contemplate this incredible realization. I was a father. I had a son. It was only later that I was able to go and give some comfort and reassurance to my wife. That son has grown up, got married, he's got children of his own now. And a tremendous amount has flowed from that moment All kinds of things have happened which have shaped our lives and his and other people's. And in a sense, Palm Sunday is a bit like that. It's an event which set in train, a course of other events, which had a profound and totally unpredictable effect on the life of the whole of the human race. You see, Jesus knew precisely what he was doing. The simmering opposition of the Jewish rulers was coming to the boil. And when he went into the temple courts and threw out the tables, threw out the, uh, overthrew the tables and the money changers and threw out those who were buying and selling sacrificial animals Verse 18 of our reading tells us that the chief priests began to look for a way to kill him. But I wonder if you noticed in our reading that Jesus did something rather strange before he reached the temple. He had a conversation with a tree. That's a rather one-sided conversation, nevertheless. And I want to explain what was happening. What was going on was this. Jesus was acting out a parable. It was an acted parable. You see, there are various things that the Bible says about Jesus and about the tree. First of all, Jesus was hungry. He was hungry. He needed some kind of nourishment. And secondly, it says that the the, the tree was, was covered in leaves. Now, he knew, Jesus knew, because he'd often seen this as a boy in Nazareth, he knew that sometimes, even before the season for figs, if a tree was covered in leaves, you could lift up the leaves, and underneath there would be little green figs. Now, y- you couldn't eat too many of them, otherwise you'd get serious stomach ache. But at least they would quench your thirst. There would be something to uh, slake his thirst. So he went up to this tree, and he lifted up the leaves, but there were no figs at all. Okay, hold that picture in your mind. Away in the distance was the city of Jerusalem, a beautiful city. It's a beautiful city now, and it was certainly a beautiful city in those days, with the temple gleaming in the sunshine, glittering in the sunshine, because the pinnacle of the temple was covered in gold. And in a sense, it was like that tree, full of promise. But what was inside? Well, inside there were a number of courts or areas. First of all, there was the court of the Gentiles. You and I would have been able to go into that temple, into that court of the temple. Anyone, any human being could enter that area of the temple and approach the God of Israel. If you were a Jew, a male or female Jew, you could go into the court of the women. If you were a male Jew, you could go into the court of Israel. If you were a a priest, you could go into the court of the priests. If you were chosen by lot, like Zechariah was, the father of John the Baptist, you could go into the holy place to offer sacrifice. If you were the high priest, you could go once a year on the Day of Atonement into the holy of holies. But the court of the Gentiles, the outer court, was the place which God had said, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And what had Jesus found? Well, first of all, he'd found a marketplace. Well, there's nothing wrong with a marketplace. But you see, it was a dishonest marketplace. If you went up to pay your temple tax, you couldn't pay it in ordinary Roman currency. It had to be changed into the temple shekel. And the rate of exchange in the temple court was extortionate and completely off the wall, as it were. If you wanted to go and offer a a sacrifice, for instance, for the birth of a child, you could get a pair of young pigeons in the marketplace in Jerusalem and you could take them to the temple court and offer them to the priest. And he would say, yes, well, mm, yes, one of these is defective. You, 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 You can't offer these. Um, in sacrifice, but you can get precisely the same animals over there to offer in sacrifice at that uh, stall over there. Yes, you could, at ten times the price. It was a dishonest marketplace. And Jesus, it says, Jesus would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. You imagine if you were trying to pray here in the church, and all of a sudden, a gang of men come through and try and and, and move a piano to you Fred lift up Come on, lift down down a bit no get out of the way how would you feel if that was the kind of atmosphere in which we were supposed to pray you see the fig tree promised so much lots and lots and lots of leaves ah it says something that will slake my thirst he lifted up the leaves what did he find nothing He went into the temple. Lots of promise. Wonderful gleaming glittering towers. Lots of promise. And no reality. And so he acted the parable. He said to the tree, no one will ever eat fruit of you again. Your day is over. And what he was talking about was the Jewish religion. Encapsulated offered to the world in terms of the temple. Because in less than 40 years after his death, every stone would be thrown down. Every pinnacle would be destroyed. And there would be nothing left. It would be the end of everything. For the Jewish nation, and for the Jewish religion. And they would be dispersed to the ends of the earth what a dreadful judgment but a judgment all the same <coughs> well jesus knew that in pronouncing that judgment he was putting his head into the lion's mouth but nevertheless he didn't turn aside supposing supposing he had not arranged to have the coat tied up and ready for him to ride down the Mount of Olives in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Supposing he'd just climbed the hill, looked at Jerusalem spread out before him, turned round and gone back to Bethany for lunch with Martha and Mary. Supposing, Supposing that had been the story, well, his life and ours would have been very different, wouldn't they? But he accepted the acclamation of the crowd and he rode down into the city where betrayal and death awaited him. And the first lesson, and there are only two, the first lesson I want to draw out of the story of Palm Sunday for you this morning is that genuine Christian commitment is always unconditional. If we follow a crucified Savior, we must be prepared to carry the cross. One of my heroes is a man called Joseph de Verster, better known as Father Damien. He was a Belgian Roman Catholic priest who volunteered to live with lepers on the island of Molokai at the end of the 19th century. Molokai was part of the then kingdom of Hawaii. Damien has been recently canonized by Pope Benedict, but for me, he's always been an inspiration. He was one of several young men who volunteered to go and live amongst the lepers. He was chosen partly... Because he was biggest and strongest. That's one of the most inspiring parts of the whole story. When the bishop asked for volunteers, about ten hands went up. You think of that. And Damien was chosen because he was the biggest and the strongest. And the bishop knew that anyone who was going to go to Molokai needed to be a big, beefy fella. And, of course, Damien knew. He knew very well that immediately he set foot on the island, he would never be able to leave it because in those days, they believed that leprosy was a very contagious disease. We know now that it actually isn't, and it takes some time to transfer from one individual to another. But nevertheless, in those days, they thought that if you came into contact with a leper physically, then there was no hope for you. And he knew that when he set foot on Molokai, he would never be able to leave. When he got there, he found... Some of the lepers living in appalling conditions because as the disease robbed them of the ability to look after themselves, they weren't able to to get water for themselves or to get food. And so one of the first things he did was to construct a system which brought water into their huts. He ministered to them in a material way, in a spiritual way. He, He built their homes and he dug their graves. And one day, when he was washing his feet he noticed that there were blisters appearing on his ankles and the lower part of his legs because the water that he'd used was scaldingly hot and he couldn't feel it. He realized then that he was a leper himself. Now, that always inspires me because he was a man who knew that genuine Christian commitment had to be un. Conditional. Of course, not every Christian is called upon to make that sort of sacrifice, but nevertheless, we're all called to find that truth that genuine Christian commitment is unconditional. We can't bargain with God and say, Well, I'll serve you Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday, but Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday are mine. I'm sorry, that won't do. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to ignore our own legitimate needs and those of our loved ones. We all need time to rest. And space to recreate ourselves. That's what the word recreation means, isn't it? Father Damien didn't have a wife and family. That's why he was able to give himself 100%. He didn't have other people to consider. When someone stays at home with their wife and their children, instead of going to yet another church-related meeting, it doesn't mean that they're letting the Lord down. They're fulfilling their obligation as a Christian parent, as a Christian husband, a Christian mother, which is just as much God's will for them as spending time in church. But you see, we've got to remember that Christian commitment's got to embrace every area of life, work, home, family, everything. It's got to be submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Um, as you know, um, we have a, a lodger with us um, at the moment in, in, in Ryecroft. He's one of our own young people, and uh, he's gone off with whole group of others, um, to uh, Spring Harvest. And it, it's, it's a really good discipline for me. It really is. Because you see, Jenny won't tell any tales. She, she's lovely, really. She won't tell any tales. Because she knows what I'm like at home. And she's heard it all before. But Alex... Uh, What did you say, Charles? (laughs) Did I hear you say... Or that look, you know? That look of astonishment. (laughs) I have to be very, very careful that my ministerial facade does not slip, even at home. But that's where the Christian faith is really proved. And that's what genuine Christian commitment has got to represent, unconditional commitment. William Cooper wrote, The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. It's only the Holy Spirit who can tell us what that idol is And only the Holy Spirit who can give us the power to tear it down and replace it with Jesus Christ. Well, that's the first thing that flows from Palm Sunday, that genuine Christian commitment is unconditional. Jesus' commitment was, and we must follow him if we are to be true to our Lord. Second thing, finally, is this, that when our commitment is unconditional, God can work miracles He can do amazing things through human beings who give themselves totally to him. Let me tell you a true story. When Burma was invaded by the Japanese during the Second World War, a group of women teachers from a Christian school fled to an outlying village. At that point in the war, the British were in retreat, and some stragglers were sheltered by the women as they made their way back to safety. The soldiers were famished, parched, and exhausted, Their feet were blistered and bleeding from enforced marching. The women couldn't turn them away. However, in the village, there were some people who hated Christians, and the women in particular, and they denounced them to the Japanese. And the women were rounded up. Although they pleaded for mercy, none was given. When they realized they were about to die, they asked for space to prepare themselves, but in the next moment, they were mown down. Well, two years later, when the Japanese were gone, the local bishop arrived to conduct a confirmation service, and amongst the candidates, he noticed someone had been a prominent anti-Christian leader. Indeed, this was one of the people who had denounced the teachers to the Japanese. And the bishop asked him why he had come seeking admission to the church. And the man told him that what had changed his life had been the way those girls had died. Their courage in the face of cruelty had convinced him of the genuineness of their faith. And he realized that the hatred that he felt for them was destroying him. His behavior was transformed and his life was redeemed. On um, BBC Two, on a Friday evening, there's a series at the moment called Reverse Missionaries. I don't know whether some of you have seen it. On Friday evening last week, there was a program featuring the work of Amy Carmichael, a young reverse missionary, as it were, from India, wonderful, wonderful young woman, has come back to Belfast to try to re-enliven the Christians in Belfast, because that's where Amy Carmichael came from. She went to India. She spent 50 years in India rescuing children from temple prostitution. And this particular program is centered on the work of Amy Carmichael and this young woman from India. Now, you've heard me speak of Amy Carmichael before. She, again, is one of my heroes. Because... Although for the first 25 years of her ministry in India, she was able to to work totally, committedly rescuing children for the last 25 years. She wasn't able to leave her room because she was injured in a dreadful accident that was never properly attended to and she never recovered. In constant pain, she was unable to leave her room. And the only two things she could do was to write and to pray. And she wrote letter after letter to her friends and colleagues. She bore them unceasingly in prayer, and the result of those second 25 years is a collection of letters and thoughts which has brought inspiration to to thousands, including Jenny and, and me. I don't really know where we'd be without the inspiration and encouragement of Amy Carmichael through the years. This is an extract from one of her letters. She writes, I cannot forget the Flint's flint stones, sharp stones. I cannot forget the flints on my own path and the thorns. But looking back, I know I would not have chosen any other if I could have known when first I began to walk in it what it meant of Christ's companionship and also of the power to enter into the griefs of others. It was all worthwhile 10,000 times. Worthwhile. Wouldn't you love to get to the end of your life and look back and say, it was all worthwhile, 10,000 times worthwhile. And as a Christian, of course, to say, and the best is just round the corner. That's what I want to say at a funeral, you know. I never have the courage because um, I know that people would misunderstand. Perhaps when I'm uh, conducting the funeral service of the next Christian I uh, have uh, the privilege of, of ministering to, I can say, Isn't it wonderful? The best is yet to be! Because it is. It is. Genuine Christian commitment is unconditional. You know the prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola? Teach me to give and not to count the cost, to fight and not to heed the words. To labor, and not to seek for any reward, save that of knowing that I do your will. That's genuine Christian commitment. It's not a mountain to climb. It's not a mountain to climb. It's a gift to be received. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless you for the example of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Help us to follow him, even though it is costly, every step of the way. We ask for his name's sake. Amen.